Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is the show where we share cutting-edge strategies to help CMOs, marketing directors, heads of business everywhere to acquire more leads and sales to ultimately achieve your vision as an organization. And this week, pretty excited for this week's episode, we have curated four of the top episodes, the top guests on Perpetual Traffic from this past year, ranging everywhere from SEO link building, content marketing, Facebook versus Google, tracking issues that a lot of you have faced in 2023, as well as the importance of video. And we're going to be pulling out the best nuggets from those four shows from this past year for this week's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for that in just a second. I just want to remind you all that we are going to be announcing on next week's show on January 2nd, the winner of the All Access Pass to Traffic and Conversion Summit. So stay tuned for that. Next Tuesday, we'll announce that on air and you get to meet myself in custom or not if you don't want to, but you'll meet the folks from Clarion as well who are hosting the event. So that will be announced next Tuesday. We are gathering all the votes and I think we have decided upon a random winner. So that will be announced next Tuesday. Also, if you have not gotten your ticket for Traffic and Conversion Summit as of yet, make sure you register over at trafficandconversionsummit.com and use the coupon code Perpetual Traffic for 20% off. And we will see you in Vegas at Traffic and Conversion Summit. Also, make sure that you check out perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube, our YouTube channel, where this podcast is going to be shown as well. So right after this quick break, we're going to get into our year-end wrap-up episode with four of the best episodes that we feel we did this year on Perpetual Traffic. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you all in Vegas. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me, and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. The other thing I tell my clients is you should be spending as much time or more promoting your new piece of content as you did creating it. And the reason why is Google is definitely looking at social media signals 
for popularity in the same way Google looks at links as indications of popularity. But if mm. you think about it, for a given piece of content, you're likely to get way more social media shares if it's really good or interesting or viral than you are to get links. And you'll probably get those a lot sooner. So by the time a bunch of bloggers decide that you have a great resource, I'm going to link to it. It's probably already been reading the blogger found it because they saw it shared on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, whatever it happens to be. If you think back, there's a little announcement by Google. I'm thinking it was a year and a half ago where prior to this, anything that was any link that was in user generated content, which would be in a blog comment in a forum or a community or Facebook or Twitter on the traditional social media channels or Reddit. Anything that was user-generated content where the owner of the website couldn't vouch for that veracity of that link, Google wanted you to mark those links with no follow so they wouldn't count it with page rank. And then a year and a half ago, Google comes out with a new recommendation is, hey, for user-generated content, don't make it real no follow, make it rel equals UGC for user-generated content. And if mm -hmm. it's a paid ad, make that rel equal sponsored. The only reason Google would want us to all be doing that is because they intend to measure it which tells us that they're now at a point where if you use GSASDR, which basically will blast the same blog comment out on 100 million blogs, um, Google's confident they can spot that and ignore that. So mm -hmm. therefore, they're now interesting. They might not feed this data into PageRank, but they're feeding into the social media popularity part of the algorithm. So if you have a piece of content, and gee, I see seven or eight different Facebook timelines this week that all shared something with a link to that page, and it got tweeted, and the image from it got pinned and repinned to Pinterest 25 times, something's going on. There's a popularity signal there. And so you should be doing that promotion. Well, traditionally, SEOs are like, do that outreach, get people to link to my article. Okay, yes, yeah, still need to want to do that. But you also want to do that push on the social media channels so that, go, so that Google sees that it is legitimately popular with a bunch of consumers out there. I'm going to ask a question that's going to get me yelled at, Michael. Okay. All right. So just my mind just thinks black hat. I think I was born this way. I think I, I need to go to confession at some point because I'm obviously very just naturally. Why wouldn't I go to Fiverr and just go get some people to tweet, LinkedIn post, Facebook share, et cetera, my article? Is Google categorizing the individual profiles based off of merit? Or at this yeah. point, do you think profiles are all created equal and just go get some social shares on your new article? Not 100% positive. I would pretty much guarantee that inside Facebook, they can tell you which is a legit profile, which is not. Hmm. By the way, how many Facebook profiles get shut down per quarter, do you think? I bet you adjusted for margin of error, all of them. Got right, it. Like most of Facebook is a cesspool. It's just my guess. 1.3 billion <laughs> quarters ago. Yeah. There's more people than use Facebook, right? Yes. So is there a problem? About there half. might be a problem there, right? So I half. guarantee that Facebook knows which of those profiles are real. Do Ralph I think gets real offended when we poke at Facebook, just so you know. Ralph, is he's, he drank the Kool-Aid. He's part of the mothership. Absolutely. I like Facebook. It's a tremendous tool for keeping touch with my friends and family. And it's a good tool for promoting certain stuff and getting customers. It's a lot of very nice people at Facebook, by the way, just uh, so you Facebook's know. Facebook's a dumpster fire. I think you both are just, <laughs> just feeding the beast. That's my opinion. So I don't believe Google knows what are legit Facebook profiles and what are not. I doubt that Google is even caring who liked anything on Facebook, mm. but I think Google can see the any public timeline. So if you don't make your timeline visible only to your friends, then it's just another web page out there in the web. As long as something links to it, Google can see that. It's a web page and it's got some links on it. Google knows it's Facebook, therefore it's social media and besides no followed or UGC. Well, now hold on. That's a nugget right there. If your Facebook page or profile, individual profile, isn't public to the web, it's not an SEO tool. Right. Google can't see it. That's a hell you, of a nugget. You get the, you must be logged in to view this. Right. And Facebook. It's part of my site audit is to see if, whether my business clients have their Facebook profile is public because if it's not, Google can't use that as another way to verify, okay, yes, this is part of the brand and popularity and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and as my experience as an amateur stalker, most people's Facebook profiles are not public. And they shouldn't be. Otherwise, people steal your photos, make fake profiles, right. try to friend all your friends, all that, which is why the 1.3 billion gets shut down every And photo. I'm making a joke about amateur scams. stalker, by the way. As an employer, what I like to do is I like to go look at people's social profiles just to see who it is that I'm hiring. Oh, yeah. And as often as not, Profiles are proud, which honestly, as an employee or somebody applying for a job, do that. 
Because otherwise, I will. Dude, I'll go a year back. I want to see all... Maybe this is illegal. I shouldn't be saying these words. So, Michael, you keep going before I get sued or canceled. (laughs) Don't just stop at LinkedIn is what you're saying. Yeah. If you want to be a professional stalker. So, Kasim, your question was, do I pay somebody on Fiverr to go and share this sort of stuff? The white hat side of me says, oh, oh, no, boy, don't do that. Yeah, it's probably going to work. So, what I tell my clients to do is not do that. But, hey, if you've got a piece of content that you need to get out there and you want to show Google it's got some popularity... Hmm. send an email out to your team and in that email have a link to the Facebook post, a link to the LinkedIn, link to the Twitter and ask your employees sometime in the next hour, take 30 seconds and reshare these to your timelines or like them or comment on them. Dude, this is funny. This is the second time we've been given this piece of advice. We had a gal on here, Christine Marie. She's a branding expert. She said the exact same thing, but for social juice, when she's about to do a big launch on LinkedIn, mostly is what she uses because she does a lot of B2B. She did like a huge launch for Amazon and she teed up her team and the Amazon team. And they knew when this post goes live, go comment, share, because the yeah. velocity of a new post is so important internally. And you're saying it's actually important externally too. So it feels like you get a two for one there. There's no yeah. downside so risk to doing it. There's so much content getting pumped out on all these channels that, that are coming from everybody you follow. That there's no way that whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, you can see everything that's posted by everybody you follow. So they've all got an, an algorithm and Facebook's I'm more familiar with where they'll, it's kind of like layers of an onion. They'll show your new post to maybe the 10 or 15 people that interact with you most. If it's all crickets, nobody likes it, nobody shares it. Okay, we're done. That's not mm-hmm. going out further. If mm-hmm. of those 20 people, three people like it and somebody writes a comment and one shares it, okay, we'll show it the next 30 or 40 mm-hmm. in your profile until we get out to for your 400 or 500 or a thousand level layer of the onion friends. And so, and all these channels have to be able to do that so that they can show the content that is interesting and people yeah. don't go to Facebook or whatever and go, all I see is the dregs. I'm just not coming back here anymore. All you're doing is really yeah. just giving it a little kick in the pants to start. And if, if it's good enough, it will take off on its own. Like we have right. TikTok videos that have 300 views and some with 300,000 views. Like for no apparent, I don't really know why, but what started it? What got it up to that point? Like we don't really know, but we do. I mean, if you have a team or you have an internal people that you can send stuff to, like why not do it? Because it's such a yeah. low barrier. Yeah. I mean, for us, like the little tip that we have is we have a social sharing channel. So whenever we post anything at channel, like share, comment, retweet, do whatever you need to do, all the links are in there and it gives it like an initial little boost. The question is if it's good enough to go viral or help SEO or anything on our socials, it's going to do it on its own merit, but why not? leverage the tools that you already have. In this case, people that you're already paying money to, why not ask them to do the same right. damn and, thing? And if you create this great piece of content and none of those first 10 people that Facebook decides to show it to happen to comment on it, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter how good the content right. is because nobody it's else is going to see die. it. You, yeah. Yeah, you've got to get it out there to that, that 100 or so so that the, the stats and the numbers can start working for you. For sure. Um, what I'm not hearing from you yet is link building. Oh, right. Right. How could you? Did I jump the shark here, so to speak? Like, because it still has to be like that was the thing that we focused on as an SEO agency. We've had a couple of SEOs on here that link building is their speciality and they do it very legitimately. And there's very a lot of people that do it and have high paid individuals that go out and build those links. And I used to do a lot of outbound myself and go to all the the page rank, if that's still a thing, like seven, eight, nines, and see if I could grab links on them or buy them somehow. Like, what role does it play today in February of 2023? So, So there's lots of talk from Google and outside about how links are not as important as they used to be. And I would say, I would spin that, I'd say links are as important as they always have been, except that now there's these other ranking factors which are part of it, content, and popularity and coverage of the topic and things like that. Link building is still really important. If there's any question of whether it's important or not, do a search for SEO consultant. And if you're in the SEO industry, look at how many names you've got to look at in the top 40 or 50 results to see 10 names. I don't know if you'll see 10 names in the top 50. 
And if you look at some of those people you don't know, use like the Moz Link Explorer tool and look at their backlink profile. And if you're in the link selling business or you help your clients acquire links, you can look at a bunch of those people's links and you go, I know that publisher. I know that publisher. I know that publisher. They're getting links from places. I know where they bought them. And to say that, oh, the Google to say, oh, we know how to spot paid link. No, you don't. You know how to spot the super, super easy one. So the link spam update that came out in October, I have a client who has a very weak backlink profile, maybe 30 or 40 legit domains linking. And then they had 80 or 90 domains linking that were paid links, but they were just crappy scraper directory stuff, things that, mm -hmm. that don't rank for anything. He'd done no paid link building. So nothing illegitimate going on. And with the link spam update, he lost half his traffic because all this stuff, which 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, there's no way Google's counting that. Google was still counting. So wow. Google says they're way up here in terms of spotting this stuff. And I think the reality is they're way behind. And if you look at the search results for SEO consultant, and you got to believe that some people at Google look at that once in a while to see what games people are playing. If people are going to play games with links, it's going to be people trying to rank for SEO consultant, right? Look at the backlink profile for some of these people. So you'll see legit people like Bruce Clay up there and Solus and Ray Drysdale from Outspoken Media. They're down at 30 and 40. I think Bruce Clay is on page one and deservedly. But all this stuff in between, these are people I have never seen at a conference. I've never seen an article from any, any place. So that link building is still working. I've got clients in very competitive spaces that are spending several thousand a month on paid link building and continuing to rank number one, both in local and in regular organic because of that. Now, the kind of link building we're talking about here is not the, the cheapo directory garbage. This is where you work with a company that comes up with an idea for an article. They have a reason in the article to have a soundbite quote from you because you're in that space. And then they go pitch that to a publisher who sometimes will flat out reject it. Say, eh, that's not a fit or that just sounds too self-promotional. That might sound a lot like PR because it is. That's what a PR person does. They have a story about your company and they're pitching that to, to various reporters trying to come up with a spin that they know real readers will actually see that headline go, okay, what about this? I need to learn more about this. That's interesting. And then the story itself is interesting. It's that kind of link building is legit. Mm. You give somebody 300 bucks and they guarantee they can put that link someplace. Okay. You, you know that first of all, that's not terribly legit. And the other thing is if you're Google, how do you spot those kinds of places that are pure paid link building sites? You spot them because a lot of the ads there are ads for organizations that can't get a link on a legit site. So they're selling Viagra, online gambling, mortgage refi, cheap car insurance, all that sort of stuff that you can't get links to from legit places. You see all sorts of articles that are about that. And so the pattern is really obvious for Google. If, you're, if your link building is legit, it's still working absolutely, but you need to be doing it like PR. You need to be writing real stuff people give a crap about, published at places that real people go to and actually read and share on social media and things like that. You cannot look at a ROAS from yesterday because you probably spend a lot of money that haven't actually converted yet. You have to look at that window. You're investing in the future. Talk on this. We were really heavy in the real estate lead generation space for almost a decade. And one of the things that we did really well, and I'm not picking on real estate investors. Everybody does this. Real estate investors would say, I spent 30 grand in January. How much money did I make in January? So I spent 30 grand and I made $100,000. Oh, okay, you know, we had a 3X. That's not bad. Well, their spend to impact timeline, and we did this study, it was three to six months, depending on the geography. So if you spent 30 grand in January, how much did you make in April? That's the question. You need to know what your spend to impact timeline is. And Ralph, for your buddy, it's seven days, which I don't believe, by the way. Right. I don't believe that for a fraction of a second. At least you had a number. I think, <laughs> well, yeah, he does. But it's recently by... Your spend impact ratio is always going to be seven days if you run your campaigns on seven day approach. But zoom out. What's your spend to impact timeline? And if you spend money today, know when it is I should be reviewing the impact of that. The fact that we're on this weird, forced 30 day recurring trend is absolute insanity. And the fact that we compare to the point that Frederick just made, what we spent today with what we made today, they're irrelevant. They have nothing to do with each other literally no connection whatsoever. 
What you spent this month probably has no impact on how much money you made this month, period. And that comparison is what you're using to make your optimization decisions off. Or you're it's looking insane. at the wrong metric. Right. And you're just you're like- Yeah, predictive indications of intent, maybe. Right, right. So in his case, he's yeah. like, hey, I'm getting $70 leads. That's great. I'm like, well, how do you know it's great? It's like, well, I just know it's great because it's the lowest CPL we've had and the business is doing well. I'm like, well, at least that's an indication. But what's the actual thing that he really should be looking at? So in our case study for the personal injury law space, it's like, who cares about phone calls? Who cares about leads? That's important. But a lot of those are going to be slip and fall cases. They're going to be workman's comp cases that aren't going to actually have a lifetime value of ten dollars to $20,000. Millions in some cases, usually anywhere between ten dollars to $20,000. So the thing that we track and we optimize all our Google ads for, and now our Facebook ads for, is the offline conversion, which is a signed case, which is a two to three week window once the lead comes in the door. And then that offline conversion is then zapped back in and then manually uploaded, cross-referencing phone numbers. Now we know what a signed case is and we're giving that data to Google and now to Facebook with offline conversions. Go find me more of those guys. I don't care about Sorry. phone mm-hmm. calls and leads and everything else. I care about signed cases for car accidents. And that's another problem with the GA4 that you can actually, if you send something in like server side, let's say it was a real customer, you have some kind of form on your site. You only have three days to send it in. Otherwise, it will not be attributed. So. You cannot go mm, back yeah. like Google. In Google, you have 90 days. That's the maximum attribution yeah. window for a Google Click ID. So you have 90 days to import it. So there you can actually send some real customers in back to that Google Click and ask Google to come back with more of these rather than just people signing up to a form from somewhere weird in the world. Well, I think that's an important point. <laughs> so now you're using your Google Ads as you're reporting and your GA4 is now tossed out the window to our earlier point. Maybe it's actually attributing in the right ways or splitting credit. But in that particular case, use case, now it's, you got to look at your Google ads for your reporting to figure out how effective you're operating your business. Correct me if I'm wrong, because of the three-day window, which I didn't realize. Yeah, that's from the measurement protocol where you upload conversions through the API. So yeah, you have to do that. If you're any kind of business, service-based business where you have more than three days, then it's really hard. Otherwise, you have to do it on MQLs or SQLs, something that happens pretty fast. But the problem is, are these two MQLs equal? Do we actually just try to get more of those MQLs in that actually never convert? It's pretty hard when you cannot really attribute that Real sale Unless back. you know through your internal metrics, like we follow all this sort of stuff like MQLs, like for every 10 MQLs, we know it's going to be five SQLs, about. And then of those SQLs, we can sell them a certain thing. And then of those certain things, then we know we're going to close a certain amount. So we do all our math backwards from the beginning all the way to the end. And then we understand, right, what's our lifetime value. So that's how we do it. And I hate to say it, we're doing it old school, like looking at everything from a 30,000 foot view, pulling everything from our master database, which in our case is is HubSpot. It's kind of just obvious to me you should be doing that. Am I just, you know, (laughs) ignoring the rest of the world? (laughs) (laughs) The problem is just if you're bidding and asking some channel for new customers, but you only have that MQL, let's say a trial, if you Mm. don't have that, who of them become a customer, you're actually just asking to maximize the amount of trials. I did it in Facebook. I was asking for trials in Facebook. And what Facebook did was amazing. Suddenly I had a trial of like 20 euros. I got like 50 trials a day. And I thought it was great when we looked at, they never even, they locked into the app and made that trial, but they never did anything in there. So Facebook Mm. was doing exactly what I asked it to, but it was not trials I could use for anything, but it had that mm. event of a trial. Right. It was your vanity metric at that point. Exactly. In, exactly. In fact, it, was, it was a great week in trials. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, look at all these trials we got. We didn't get any customers, but and nobody actually installed the damn thing. But you have to look deeper. Well, you actually did look deeper. And then you figured out, okay, well, that's a faulty metric. That's a vanity metric, even though it looks nice. Yeah, we removed Gmail and Hotmails, and then suddenly they were much more expensive, but it was actually real trials. Ah, of course. Ah, yes. Love that. Well, if you can figure out the Google Performance Max lead gen thing, we we tried to... (laughs) 
I'm sure this I, is probably I heard that episode. Max. I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we still haven't figured that one out. We just don't recommend it, just in general. Even with taking the out the, the fly trap, mm, didn't work for us. No. Just, and then we just realized it was, it was all these MQLs that were coming in, and then they weren't turning into SQLs for performance max. So we just That's gave the up problem. The fly trap works to subvert the bot and click farm traffic, but it doesn't mean that the leads are going to be quality. It just means that they'll have a pulse. You know, they're real humans. So the flytrap solves one problem, but then it gives way to yet another problem. And Pmax reaches so far and wide and is very heavy-handed. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you're seeing unqualified leads. Yes, yeah, that was a three-month-plus trial. I don't know how much we spent. Oh, God, I don't even want to think about it. But it was basically for just a bunch of crap leads. And at the end of the day, we actually thought that we had figured it out with the fly, the honey trap or fly trap, Venus, the costume trap. I don't know what we're calling it, the custom trap, but it still didn't yield the thing that really mattered to us, which is a sales qualified lead. So it's like, that's for business owners. Like, what's the thing? Yeah, HubSpot have it in beta now with enhanced conversions where you can actually get those forms in and then your different stages in HubSpot, you can upload those with the real deal value and so on. I don't know yes. if it works. Mm. In theory, it should be just like the GA4 new import. It should be perfect. Or at least I saw that beta. They had HubSpot, which made it really easy for many to do it. I don't know if it's released yet. We have it on the list of things to test, but yes, we've seen that coming through. What other pieces of advice can we now say in this fractionated world of attribution? Are we just going back to basics once again, or do you have any other recommendations as far as how to sort of solve this mix? I think actually a lot of businesses also from our talk here have forgotten the basics. They have forgotten that they are actually doing a business that needs to make some kind of profit. They need to cover the fixed cost. They need to know how many new customers are coming in, how much ad spend, what does a new customer actually cost. Those kind of business KPIs have a little bit been forgotten in that new next fantastic hack in Google or Facebook or whatever it is. And I believe that we have to take them a little bit more serious now because this is where we know there is a truth because our numbers in the bank tells us so. It's such a phenomenal point about the basics. There's a glaring need for a mastermind or a cohort or a training or something. I mean, shit, you could call it back to basics. If a really bright entrepreneur built something like that and focused just on these fundamentals, I think that that would be so massively valuable. Maybe it exists, but I don't know about it. Everybody goes advanced. Then they go more advanced and then they go more advanced. And now all the training is for standard deviations more advanced than anybody really can afford because nobody's mastered the basics. That is what we try to do every day, try to get people back on that basics. Like why are you optimizing an e-commerce business based on revenue? You have two orders of $200 each. They look similar. You're spending the same, but one you make $50, the other one you make 100 on. Why don't you try and get some more of those where you make 100 on and less on that one at 50? Why don't you use your real profit? Nobody did it when we started. I only was looking out there because I had a business which went bankrupt, essentially. I had a business where I was scaling. I was doing case studies with Facebook, the first one in Scandinavia, thinking that I was just... Amazing. Once I got some numbers back from my accountant and he didn't add up, I got a new accounting agency to go over these numbers and I just scaled. I hit my target ROAS everywhere. It was great until I got those numbers back and thought I had a big plus on the balance sheet, but actually it was a big minus. And what could I do? I had this huge marketing spend and I knew something was profitable, but now I also knew something weren't and I didn't know which one it was. So I just turned down the ad spend and tried to save that business, but it actually went bankrupt. And then I found an investor, started up again right away, paid out all those creditors and just looked for a solution where I can click on a button and see how much profit did I make the last two weeks after ad spend and fixed costs without any attribution how is my business doing? And why the hell are we using and revenue, including tax, shipping, and everything in Google and Facebook? Why aren't we using the real profit? Because that's what all businesses should care about. And that's how I made profit metrics essentially today. And you own the trademark for POAS, which is profit on ad spend. That's a really brilliant paradigm to approach things with. You know what's really funny? This is going to just let everybody know how horrible of a human I am. As an agency owner, 
Poaz really scares me. I mean, being held accountable to ROAS is hard. But if my clients start tracking POAS, I'm like, man, I don't know how well we do there because, you know, now you're really naked. Yeah, but it's also churn prevention. As we see it is oh, yeah. that you can do the best marketing ever. You can hit those ROAS targets. You can increase revenue and everything. And the client can still come back three months later and say, what the hell? We got a lot of revenue in. We used a lot of ad spend, but we lost money. What is going on? Using something like the profit and actually that the client is also meshing on that and you are also meshing on that number just aligns the real business financial strategy together with marketing. And this is where, for example, now with inflations, cost price have gone up. A lot of e-commerce business have not put that increased sales price over to the end customer because they don't really want to do it. So suddenly they make much, much less in profit on each conversion. But do they actually remember from the purchasing department to go out and say that to the CMO that need to connect to the agencies that actually we need to increase that target ROAS because we're making less money and we are actually also doing some sales because we need to get more volume in? They forget that where profit will already always be live, where if you change that cost of goods, you'll see that out in Google and Facebook or analytics or whatever channel you're looking at. You would see that profitability go down. So you can also react on it before the client comes and say, what the hell is going on? Let's talk about how Google can feed Facebook as opposed to Facebook feeding Google. And I think Kasim will be very happy at this part uh, of today's episode because his Google disciples will be like, yeah, finally, we're getting some credit here. So, so both of us can drink beers at the same time, Kasim. And in, in this example, I mean, we're working on, on the same client. You're managing the, the Google ads, we're managing the Facebook ads. And the interesting thing is when we met with John and we wanted to get insights from both platforms so we can provide other insights to the other platforms that work together, we were noticing what works on Google and what type of pe keywords people are searching for before they make a purchase. So there's a lot of different keywords that people use. There's a different intent and what we said earlier is that Facebook is top of funnel, but then Google closes the sale. Well, in this case, there were a lot of instances where it was flipped. So people came initially and, and searched for the best X product, and they saw the Google ad, they clicked on it, but then they didn't convert, but then they saw our retargeting ads on Facebook and converted. So it can go vice versa. That's what I meant when I said earlier, each platform, they work together. It goes down into the nitty-gritty parts of the specific keywords that you use, then the specific ads that you use. That's why I said that in the beginning, that you, you really got to understand your customers, your product, and then which platform you use and how to arrange the meeting. Because in this case, Google was used to two different scenarios and same as Facebook. So it's, you had that kind of like that loop of certain campaigns get the top of funnel traffic and then Google closes them. But the other campaigns got the top of funnel traffic from Google, but then Meta closes them. So you get to that level of cohesiveness between the two platforms when you really take a step back and map out what the hell you're going to do like just don't go in and throw in campaigns just map out who your customers are your products the different levels of awareness and where you can meet them with the different platforms it might be that for some products that even they have like a really high price point there's a lot of research that's going to be involved on their side before they make a purchase and yes they might end up buying on google but what can you do on Facebook? Well, on Facebook, don't look at getting a conversion for that specific product on Facebook. Use Facebook to support the consideration phase. Show a couple of like how-to videos, show testimonial videos, show product comparison videos, stuff like that. Don't focus on getting a conversion. Don't optimize for a conversion. Like you can try that and see what happens, but you can also try and optimize for just getting people who are who shown interest in the product scroll a bit on the product page, and then you meet them on Facebook with those type of videos. So that way you support the Google efforts as well and vice versa. And you can do the same thing on YouTube. Show them those type of videos on YouTube as well. First of all, I agree with everything you just said. And I've seen this repeatedly with nearly every client we have. The minute we roll out omni-channel remarketing, all campaigns benefit, sometimes to the tune of 2x. And my own personal campaign is like that. Solutions 8, our cost per lead, and I, I hate CPL as a metric, but it's just the most accessible. Our cost per lead is usually between $450 and $500. As soon as we started using omnichannel remarketing, it dropped down to $250 and less. It's an unbelievable tool. Here's the, di here's the difficulty we run into, and I'm sure you guys run into it as well. And so I think maybe what we can do is brainstorm as to how to approach clients with this. Anytime 
we run campaigns to support the consideration phase. Those campaigns tend to have terrible attribution. YouTube, Meta, doesn't matter where, because the, the purchase isn't expected to take place in that application, number one. Number two, the origination didn't happen there. The conversion's not going to happen there. And so you're really not going to see anything other than engagement data, which is all vanity metrics. And unless you've done a really good job tracking pre and post conversion lift, you're kind of just telling the client, hey, we're going to go spend to support this account over here. And how is agencies or, or CMOs or digital mar- or, you know, director of marketings, how do you get stakeholder buy-in on that narrative? Because I got to be honest, fellas, I usually lose that battle, I'd say two times out of three, and then I give up. Because I'm Google, I'm the last beer, I'm going to get you drunk anyway. I know it can improve, but when the client fights me tooth and nail, I'm just like, all right, man, let's, we'll just stick to what's easy. It's a hard case to make, even though we all know it's the right thing to do. It's like convincing toddlers to eat broccoli. It's just so, at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't care. You're going to get, what is it? Lupus. What's the thing that the pirates used to get? They don't get vitamin C? Scurvy. Yeah, you're going to get scurvy and then that'll be on you. Um, I'm a horrible father. How do you how do you convince clients of that? The easiest thing will be the, the first thing I will address. The the main objection I'll, I assume they're gonna have is oh it's gonna just waste of money. Well, the interesting thing with these campaigns you don't have to spend that much money, especially the consideration ones. You can spend as low as like 10, 30 bucks a day, and that's it. But what what you can do is run the campaigns as they are, thirty days, no consideration support at all. See the numbers you get. And then for the next 30 days, add those consider- on consideration campaigns and then see if you're mm, getting it's a like a pre and post provocation performance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, you don't have to spend that much money on these campaigns. It's really a support. It really, it's, you don't have to spend so much money on these campaigns because the audience is fairly small and with the low budget, you can still reach out to them and generate results. So you don't have to spend that much money there. You just play a bit with it a bit and you'll end up still reaching to those audiences multiple times. So when you address that price objection immediately, I think that's definitely going to lower the barrier. That's another reason that you either need all of your teams talking to each other or everything in, under one roof. Because if you're going to do that pre and post provocation test, everybody has to be on board. And if they're not, you can't do it. The interesting part about this is that in that Bennett and Field study, which we referred to in the previous episode, which we'll leave links in the show notes for this, like one of the best like marketing studies that nobody knows about that I've read in quite some time, it backs this up and it actually says specifically their conclusions were that 60% of your spend should be on brand or awareness slash consideration phase. And why awareness, we're talking about like that YouTube video that doesn't get the click, right? It's the video view or the video view on Facebook that doesn't get the click. The consideration is when they opt in for the coupon code or they become a lead or that you have a sort of a middle of a transitional call to action somewhere between where you want them to go and where you ultimately want them to go. Like in our case study here, it could be a coupon code. I mean, they have that wheelie thing like everybody else does on their e-commerce site where they put in their name and email address. And there's a reason for that is that that stuff actually does work because you can long-term nurture them by getting some consideration, even if when they visit the site, they don't actually activate or convert. So there is that sort of messy middle there to a certain degree, especially if there is no click, because not even Wicked Reports can go back and track that. So it's a little bit of a leap of faith where you really do have to look at marketing efficiency ratio and have the client on board with it. But it's the key to scale. It's like that first step that Indiana Jones took in the third indie movie, which I'm sure you've seen, where it's like he's stepping out into the chasm. Like it's scary, but then all of a sudden the stone that blends into the other cliff, like all of a sudden appears out of nowhere. (laughs) I'm losing right movie reviews. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing, okay? And Indy's got to get thing. this thing. He's yeah. got this thing. He's crossed. Yeah. I'm going to leave the video of that in the show notes just so <laughs> I am not going down a total rabbit hole here and <laughs> losing yeah. everyone. Uh, but it's like that. It really is. Some of this, but like Kobe said, you don't have to put 60% of your budget into it up front. You can start with 10 to 20 to $30 a day, 100 bucks a day. 
and just boosting top of funnel and see what measure it and do a conversion lift study. Oh, you know, we could actually do that on meta. So yes, there is a lot of that and it's a hard sell. Awesome. But I, I do think that when a lot of customers come to us, they've come up against a level of scale. They're like, how do I get to the next level? Yeah, they're more sophisticated and they understand the value proposition. That's really helpful. Not all of them. Yeah. Like, you know, in the case study here, we haven't even gone to that level yet, but that would be the next level of scale 100%, especially when the Google and the Facebook teams are really communicating with each other. But yeah, it is a leap of faith. And that's why some brands are huge and some are mid-sized because they don't want to take that leap of faith. Mm. You know what it reminds me of? It would actually be really cool to do just for normal clients. I used to run uh, a lot of challenge traffic. I was Pedro Adeo's traffic agency for a year and change. And he'd run like millions of dollars to, in a single challenge, you know, over, in like a seven day span, we'd spend $10 million or something like that. And because challenges are very impulse by ask his show rate was always, I mean, it was really good for challenges, but he always had a lower show rate than he wanted. So, you know, if a hundred people signed up getting 30 onto the challenge was good. And then and this wasn't a, a, as big a problem with his challenges, but for other people he consulted with, a really big problem was return rates because these online challenges sell something. So let's sell like a course or a membership or whatever for two grand. And they have these insane guarantees. You're going to lose 30 pounds in 30 days or 100% of your money back. And then they'd get 50% return rates or just things that were crazy and, and catastrophic to a business. So what we started to do is we actually ran post-conversion ads Somebody signs up for the challenge. We run ads reminding them how awesome Pedro is, how awesome the guest speakers are, what a great time they're going to have. And it increased their show rate sometimes by 2x. It would double. And then after the challenge, post-purchase, we would run ads reinforcing their purchase decision. And then what we found out is most of the people that were refunding the products just weren't taking the courses. So if we could run enough ads to get them to open up the course, they'd be like, holy crap, this is actually really good stuff. And then we decrease the amount of returns. And it makes me think that if you have a sophisticated client who really understands the value proposition of, of this type of indoctrination, after a client buys a product, putting, like Kobe's saying, case studies, testimonials, even info, like how to, you know, I just bought a new Traeger grill. And if you sent me a bunch of videos on how to grill up, you know, here's how you do salmon, here's how you do ribs, here's how you do brisket. I would be more likely to not just use my grill, but be happy with my grill. And so there's less negative reviews, longer retention, you know, more Traeger pellets sold. I think that post-conversion paid nurturing would be really fun to play with, especially in e-commerce ecosystems. Yeah, it's a really good example. I think it's something that's really overlooked. Like not, uh, people think like, all right, well, as soon as they purchase, of course, they're going to use the thing. So now I'll cross sell them with something else, which we certainly do. Like our level five, like our purchaser advertising is cross sells, upsells. It's, you know, if it's a CPG item or if it's like a supplement that's used up in 30 to 60 days, hey, you know, order again, Tactical you know, purchase. like that kind yeah. of stuff. It's an infinitesimally small spend. The point is like consumption in those ads is a small spend too. And act, it's, that's true activation. Like the awareness consideration activation is really is it's conversion, but activation is when they actually use the thing. And Which is what you want. Like you believe you in your shit. Yeah. Dude, so, this is a stupid example, but I bought one of those Wi-Fi amplifiers for my house. You know, it's supposed to be because my wife, my Wi-Fi doesn't reach every corner of my home and it was a pain in the ass. And so I, it was, it was like 400 bucks. It was an expensive buy. And then I didn't set it up for weeks. And every time I passed by it, I was pissed. I was mad at myself, but I was more mad at them. I was mad at them for selling me this thing that wasn't doing me any good. It's just this box in my office on the floor. And when I finally put it together, I'm so happy now, dude. I can go anywhere in my house and actually have internet connectivity. You know, like I'm just sitting there scrolling through freaking Instagram from my bathtub because I, I now actually can be connected. But before I set the thing up, I was irrationally angry at this company for existing and for conning me into buying their bullshit. And, it, you know, is that their fault? No. Is it incumbent upon them to run activation ads to me? No, obviously not. But it, it kind of speaks to how illogical consumers are and how if you can kind of get them into a point to where, man, I actually really like this thing. Then they shift from being pissy to being advocates. And here I am on perpetual traffic talking about my Wi-Fi 
amplifier thing, which I think is called a deco. Here's the biggest thing I think, besides knowing your customer, do you know the number one reason people decide on anything? What's the biggest influencing factor? I want to say social proof of what other people say about you, but I have a feeling that's wrong. Well, mimetic desire is important. What we see other people do is really, really important. There's a great book on it, Wanting by Luke Burgess. Amazing book. But it's the moment. It's the situation. There's all these studies about, they talk about people, priests, guys who are studying to become priests, walking over homeless people because they were told that they had to get to this place immediately. We decide because of the moment. I know you have a hot cup for your cold. It's the most important factor. So when you understand someone's journey, you also have to understand their scenes. Are they sitting with their wife? Are they sitting in a boardroom? We have to know those. And once you get into their scene, now you can, this is where great marketing becomes a lot easier. Because if you sit down and go, hey, I'm speaking to Ralph. He's trying to improve, you know, his podcast numbers are, are growing, but he really wants to get YouTube. He's in a boardroom meeting right now. He's talking to our team about YouTube. What can I tell him right now to improve his YouTube channel? at that moment. And that's why we're good salespeople initially, but we're horrible at online marketing. We try and talk to demographic. And from there, what we do is we just do a documentary style process and we ask people questions. So we ask and we put them in that moment. But you just start shooting those videos and speaking to that person at that moment. And then you can relate back to the case stories because now you know, into, and now you're into it. The rest of that stuff now, it's there's technical stuff around YouTube. But if we do just that, think about our customers, think about their moments, speak to their moments you're going to do pretty well. And the opposite of what most people do is not speaking in the moment. But what's the thing like the people listening say, oh, I do that all the time. I should be doing this instead. Yeah, we just speak in generalities. We speak in what's platitudes do for that. Yeah. Don't see what gets a ton of views because you don't know who's viewing it. Don't go, here's five things you need to do to get your website ranking higher. That will get attention, not always the right attention. You got to think about the moments closer to when they're buying from you. What's it going to be like to work with Ralph? What's it like to be to work with his team? Who's it, who are his account managers? How do his account managers work? Will he work well with my other marketing team? Will he look all right to my CEO? These are some of the questions early on, closer to the sale. And people don't start so far out of your sale. And speak to someone very like, I'm going to get Billy excited because he loves burgers and I love burgers. So I'm going to do a bunch of burger videos. So don't speak to generalities and don't be afraid to be very specific, specificity and authentic, like open. I know we all talk about authenticity, but if you really think about that person at that moment, this is where Gary Vee did a really good job because I forget her name, but he always thought about this, you know, 35 year old woman and what's going on in her life. If you speak to that moment and that person, you're going to win because so many people too speak to everyone. They're like, I'm going to turn off this person or I'm going to turn off this person. So this is where it, it helps to have someone coaching you. Yeah, it does. My guess is that a lot of people struggle with this. It's just because it's so counterintuitive because we're all very, very inwardly focused as human beings. Really, it is all what's in it for me. But as a marketer, it's got to be the exact opposite. <laughs> of that. Like the great marketers get to that point. I think the merely good marketers kind of get there, but what we're talking about is a complete transformation of really putting yourself in the other person's shoes and talking about them specifically and what they're going through at that moment of their life, because that's what matters most. And even using examples of it to articulate a specific point, like the 35-year-old example in Gary Vanderchuk's case. Yeah, exactly. My one client, Marty, runs a social media agency. He didn't talk about running social media. He talked about what type of social media manager you need and how to measure if your social media manager is good and how to where does direct response fit into your social media marketing campaign. And these are the types of questions that we have to really think about. And we do kind of as humans when they're across from us, but it's so easy with the computer on the other side. And then we start to mirror Alex Hermosi and generalities. Like I was watching his stuff the other day and it was good. And it's like, hey, you've got to have a good offer. Uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> and he explains what an offer is for 30 minutes. I'm like, I don't want to work with someone who has no idea what an offer is. Do you? Mm. <laughs> no. No. I mean, it's just because they're so far away from being able to work with me. Yeah. In the case of the example that you just talked about, it was not the top five tips 
for setting up a successful Instagram campaign. It was the top five tips for hiring and or what a good media buyer looks like. Those are two very different. And I think we're coming back to one of our original themes here when we first started talking. It's talking to two separate avatars by way of the content itself. The first one is very much the doer. Like if you have a do-it-yourself course on teaching people how to run Facebook ads, that would be a video you'd want to do. The top five tips for Facebook ads in 2023 or whatever it happens to be. Like that's a doer. But if your ideal customer is not the doer, maybe the doer recommends to the next level up, but you need to talk to the avatar, think about what they're thinking of. Okay. In the case of this particular case, it might be the VP of marketing, the director of marketing, that kind of thing, because they're the ones who need to know, all right. And when I hire a media buyer, this, these are the things that I need to know. If it's coming from an agency, probably the sixth one, the bonus one is, Hey, if none of these five work, then the sixth one is an agency. So probably keep that one out. We've all seen that trick. But the point is, is like you create the content around the avatar by thinking through what they're really concerned about as opposed to the opposite. And because a lot of people have asked me, I was like, why don't you do more of this type of content? We used to do that. Well, when we had info products, we were teaching people how to do it. Yeah, we did do that. But that's very different than what we're doing right now. This is a B2B sale as opposed to a B2C sale. Yeah. And an important thing to remember in your B2B sale is especially a bigger company, you have three or four decision makers and you kind of need to speak to them all. You need to start to know their journey. And I think it's easier to speak to a CEO, a COO and punch down to the CMO than it is to get the CMO to recommend you because, you know, that's just the reality of it. But that's the other thing we're seeing too with YouTube is, you know, I talked to Kasim about it because it, you know, he's had this happen too, is the YouTube channel gets passed around. It's like you were saying, it's much more easy to watch. And so it's easier for someone to pass around your YouTube channel. And that's where you can speak to the entire company. Because the way it's also designed, it's easier to see because you can have playlists. And I think that's one thing that you really need to think about when you get empathetic, like we talked about, is what your YouTube channel looks like for these people and how easy easy it is. Because if we jam it up with all this stuff that we're trying to get millions of views on, we're they're going to miss that material that is important to them. Mm, that, yeah. Just to go back to the one of the original points was it doesn't necessarily matter the number of views. It's the amount of people that actually are watching that you really care about at the end. And this journey is a convoluted journey. It's hundreds of touch points all the way through. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Make sure that you do tune in next week. Everyone who has left a review of Perpetual Traffic wherever you listen to podcast, We very much appreciate that. And our one lucky winner will be announced January 2nd. An opportunity to meet myself, Cosm, as well as Lauren Petrullo at Traffic and Conversion Summit. So definitely look out for that. Make sure that no matter where you listen to podcasts, you subscribe and leave a rating and uh, let us know what we can do better over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. We're going to kick that off to start the new year here so that we are delivering the type of content that you want to hear on this show. And make sure that you follow myself and Kasim on our socials, me especially on LinkedIn. Kasim over on every social known to mankind at Kasim Aslam. Go back and listen to previous episodes. Make sure that you do subscribe to our YouTube channel at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash YouTube. So all resources that we mentioned here on this week's year-end wrap-up show are in the show notes over at perpetualtraffic.com. On behalf of my awesome co-host, Kasim Aslam, until next show, see ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic, 